Our passage today is Luke 2, chapters, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. And so if you would, would you please turn to that in your Bible? Uh, it's a passage you've likely heard hundreds of times. You may have even read it this week as we prepare for Christmas. It's coming up soon. And so this passage is about the birth of Jesus, and it's a super important passage for us this morning because the kingdom of God comes to us in a manger. And so it's for this reason I've titled this sermon that this is for you, yes, you. Uh, whether this is the first time reading this passage or the thousandth, uh, what I want you to see this morning is that this passage isn't something that you just need the right stance on. Uh, but what we, you and me, what we really need is we really need this baby. And I don't know where you find yourself this morning and what baggage you have when you come through these doors. But as we're about to read, the angel says, Behold, I bring to you good news of great joy. And so it's my hope this morning that I bring to you good news of great joy. And so if you would, would you please follow along with me from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, and to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn." And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Since the reading of God's Word. Before we go further this morning, let's pray and ask God for help. Father, we thank You for this passage, this birth announcement of a Savior for a people who are far gone, a people who are lost. So, Father, we want to see this good news of great joy. We ask that You fill us with that this morning, and we ask that You would open our minds, open our hearts to understanding these Scriptures. Father, we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, I love Christmas. I always have. Some of my most vivid and favorite moments happened during Christmas time. It was one of the things that shaped our family. 
Uh, my dad, he's here this morning. He worked for McCrae's, and Christmas always started with him working at 5 a.m., the charity sale event for McCrae's on Black Friday. The following Sunday, we'd put up our Christmas decorations. We would go see Christmas lights in Canton. We'd make real wood fires in our fireplace. And sometimes we would even wear shorts and sandals on Christmas Day because we live in Mississippi. And that's just how it goes sometimes. But I enjoy Christmas so much that a couple years ago, I decided to break our family tradition of putting up Christmas after Thanksgiving. I just I decided I needed more. And so now I'm, I'm a Christmas before Thanksgiving guy. Uh, let's just say the tree and Christmas music has been playing at my house since about the second week of November this year. Um, I love Christmas. And so, okay, Jeremy, we get it. You'd love Christmas. You've even got a little Christmas tie on. Why are you telling us this? Well, by way of introduction this morning, I wanted to bring up a famous Christmas song. Its recordings have been by Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, Jessica Simpson, Natalie Grant, Michael McDonald, Stevie Wonder, and most recently John Legend. Uh, You've probably heard it. You've probably heard it on the radio this week if you're into Christmas music. But it's called That's What Christmas Means to Me. And so as the title suggests of this song, it talks about things that are important to the singer about Christmas. And some of the things that he lists, he lists things like candles, mistletoe, snow, caroling, Christmas cards, decorations, lights, more singing, waking up early on Christmas morning. And the truth is, I I like those things too. I really do. I enjoy the Christmas season. However, if that's all that we have to look forward to, then we're really selling ourselves short on what Christmas is. Matt Chandler, the guy that I quoted at the very beginning of the service, he writes this. He says, I love Christmas because it's the start of the story that means one day everything will really be perfect. It's that start of that story that one day everything will really be perfect. And so if we're honest with ourselves, we would admit that everything is not perfect. We try our hardest to appear that it is, but what we really know it's not. And so this time of year can also be really hard for a lot of people. And so it's my hope this morning that you see what the shepherds saw on that night so long ago, and I want you to have the same awe and the same wonder and the same joy that they had. It's good news of great joy. And so what I want you to see this morning is that the Christmas story, the meaning of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, it's far better than everything that's mentioned in that song. And so now I have, a, I have a question for you, an assignment for you of sorts. Uh, if, we, if I were to ask you to rewrite that song, what would you include in that? This is what Christmas means to me. What would you include if you were rewriting that song? So I want you to think about that for a bit. We're going to come back to that at the end. I'll bring it back up. But for now, I want to see three things this morning, three points that we have. First is a secret arrangement. Second is a significant announcement, and the third is a surprising audience. So a secret arrangement, a significant announcement, and a surprising audience. So we'll look at our first point this morning, a secret arrangement. So the very first thing that I want to point out is that Luke, he's very intentional to include some really important details in this passage. And it's about the context of what's going on at this time. And so this is probably something we don't really devote too much attention to when we're reading this passage. And so I want you to notice some of these details that he's providing in verses 1 to 5. We see things like a decree. 
We see things like Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, a registration. Then we get this man named Joseph from Galilee. We get this thing called David's lineage. And also, Bethlehem makes an appearance. And so what does all this mean? What is the context of this passage? Well, I was a history major in college, and so if you don't like history, just bear with me for a minute. I love this kind of stuff. Uh, Just bear with me for a moment, because there's a point that I want to make from all of this context. So here's what's going on. During this time, Caesar Augustus, he's the emperor of Rome. You've probably heard of him. August is named after him, the month. Uh, His rule was marked by peace throughout the empire. You might remember uh, from your days in history class, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, Caesar Augustus provided, presided, can't talk this morning, presided over the Pax Romana. Another thing about Caesar Augustus is that he was very passionate about organizing the empire in order to make it stronger. And so he was very gifted administratively. And so one of the things that he had to do in order to run an empire as big as the Roman Empire is that he had to take up taxes. And so in order to take up taxes, you got to know how many people live in your empire. So you know what to charge them to live there, their taxes. And so he needed to conduct a census, a registration. And he needed to see how many people lived there. However, if you were living during this time, what you would know about the census is that it didn't matter where you currently lived. It mattered where your family was from. You had to go to your ancestral home. And so because of this, even though Joseph, a man from Galilee, he lived in Galilee, um, he had to return to Bethlehem to register. He's from the line of David. And then we get this info about this guy named Quirinius, and we don't hear much about him. But it's really just there to help us date this birth, be able to to know when it happened. And I'm not going to go too much into detail on that, and you can read about that. But here's why this context is so important about Caesar and the census and Bethlehem and David and Joseph. God was orchestrating all of these things so that his purposes would be accomplished. The emperor, the census, the customs, they were all used to lead to the fulfillment of the scriptures. And so this is what I mean by a secret arrangement. Caesar didn't know that God was using him to bring about the birth of the Savior to send Joseph to Bethlehem. And Luke's real careful to drive this point home. Another thing about Caesar that we need to know is that he was treated like a god. Uh, In fact, he was called Divi Filius, which means the son of God in Latin. And so it's said that there's an inscription in Pergamum. You might recognize Pergamum from being uh, in Revelation, one of those churches that was written to there's an inscription in Pergamum that read this, the Emperor Caesar, son of God, Augustus, ruler of all land and sea. It's kind of reminiscent of our own creed, God, maker of heaven and earth. The Emperor Caesar, son of God. Uh, on a trip to Greece in Asia in 21 BC, the people called him Savior and bringer of good tidings. So we have this figure who in this day is seen as a God, even the son of a God. After all, he did bring about peace. He brought about prosperity to the empire and growth. And so in Luke's passage, though, Caesar Augustus, he's not the focus of it. Any other ancient writing, Caesar would be the guy who's going to bring about salvation. 
but not this. He's not the focus of it. He's not the main act in these first few verses. Rather, he's contrasted with this man named Joseph from Galilee. And so there's something special about this Joseph, something that makes him significant here in this passage in contrast to this son of God, so-called Caesar. See, Joseph is of the line of David, the greatest king in the history of Israel. In fact, it's this mention of David that brings us back to that covenantal promise all the way back in 2 Samuel 7. This is what God says to David, and your house and your kingship shall be made firm forever by me. Your throne will remain established forever. That there's the true king. And through David's line, there's going to be an even better king coming. So there's two things I want to point out real quick about this. R.C. Sproul, he points out, he says this, he says, It was no coincidence that this imperial decree of Caesar's happened to take place at this time, forcing them to make the journey to Bethlehem. It's not a coincidence. It's all planned. God ordains all things that come to pass. And so this emperor that was thought of as a god was unknowingly acting out the decree of the one true God. The great and powerful Caesar was like a pawn in God's hands. And so this is the secret arrangement of an all-powerful God to use a man who thought that he was a God to fulfill a prophecy of the Old Testament. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so while Caesar said about the work of building up himself, God was using even that to bring about his salvation. Second thing to point out here is I want you to notice the contrast. Uh, there's a scholar named Daryl Bach. He points out that in the period of the emperor known for his reign of peace, God raises up a child of peace. The real emperor of peace is Jesus, not Augustus. And so we'll talk about more about the greatness of this child in just a second. But this is a clear and powerful illustration by Luke of the providence of God of God working things around us to bring about His purposes. Ralph Davis, so I'm going to quote a lot more this morning. This is what he says. He says, Emperors can make such fine servants even if they are utterly clueless about what is taking place. That God would even use this act of this emperor. He says elsewhere in his commentary on 1 Samuel, he says, When I use the word providence... I mean that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way Yahweh has of ruling His world and sustaining His people and is doing it frequently, over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives or even the bias of our wills. God is using all these things, things that may even seem insignificant. And so I want to ask you, if His providence is clear and evident here in this story... Might this, His providence be operating also in your life? You know, usually it's in the moment we can't see or feel how God is working. Uh, you've all probably been there when you can't see any kind of inkling. How could you be using this, God? I can only see bad coming from this. But when we look back later on, it becomes clear as day. And so as we realize God's grip on our lives, it does help us to worry less. It helps us to stress less about things like money, about relationships. Our pride diminishes when we realize that we aren't really in control. 
that God is providing for us. It gives us a humble appreciation of our gifts. And thanksgiving for forgiveness increases in our lives. But don't just take my word for it. A huge take-home of this text is that the manger, along with the cross, are proofs that God can be trusted with my future. Certainly far better than I can trust myself with my future. So the manger is proof for that. He cares about you, and He's going to take care of you. And He's working all these things, whether we know it or not, to bring about His purposes, His plan of salvation. So that's a secret arrangement. Next point is a significant announcement. And so we see this significant announcement in verses 6 to 12. And Mary, she gives birth to Jesus and she lays him in a manger. And so if you don't know what a manger is, that's okay. It's essentially a feeding trough. So for animals, they would go and they eat there. And so because there was no room inside, he was born where animals stayed. And so the scene shifts to the countryside and angels make an appearance to this group of shepherds and they're terrified. They say, fear not. They're told to be at ease because they're come bringing good news of great joy. And so just an aside here, I just want to point out that their fear is transformed into joy. That there's this reversal that takes place here. That God's plan of salvation is all about reversing, not reserving, reversing our circumstances. Making the good, I mean, sorry, making the bad and the sad come untrue. So back to our passage, this good news of great joy is a Savior, the Messiah, and He's come. And so you probably already know, this is a hugely significant announcement. There's three things I want to look at about this announcement. Three things that I think this announcement does. And I want to look at them really briefly. The first is incarnation, second is humiliation, and the third is salvation. So this announcement is one of incarnation. That's a big word. What does that mean? Incarnation is when Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten Son of God, took upon himself a true human nature, God becoming man. To quote another pastor, the incarnation is a mind-stretching mystery. We can't explain it fully. A mind-stretching mystery. This is how the Westminster Confession of Faith defines it. So that two whole perfect and distinct natures the Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. So when we read in this passage about a baby being born, his nature is that of being very God and very man, 100% God and 100% man. And there's so much more we can say about the incarnation, but this is what I wanted to highlight. Paul Tripp says this, He says, that baby is in the manger because Jesus had to make his way to us since we would have never made our way to God. The baby is in the manger because Jesus has to make his way to us because we would have never made our way to God. So we were so far gone that Jesus had to come all the way into our situation, into our mess, to experience what we experience, to feel what we feel, weakness, hurt, heartache, abandonment, temptation. And he experienced all these things without sin, and he conquered it all for you and for me to set us free from all of that that plagues us. And so the truth is, I I really don't know exactly how this works. How can he be 100% God and 100% man? I, I can't explain that to you. 
But, but what I do know is that when the angels say, for unto you a child is born, it encompasses this whole mystery and this miracle that God will become man in order to set his people free. So more on this in just a moment. Second thing about this announcement is that it marks the beginning of Christ's humiliation. What do I mean by humiliation? Think for a moment the circumstances that Christ was born into. Uh, John 1 tells us that Jesus was God and he was with God in the very beginning. He always has been in eternity past. Uh, To quote a popular song that we sing, he left his throne above and he humbled himself to take on the form of a human, especially that of a helpless baby. He had to be fed. He had to have his diaper changed. He had to be protected. This weak, helpless baby. And so when we speak of Christ's humiliation... What we're really highlighting here is the humility that Jesus had to have in order to become a man. Again, the Westminster Confession, the Shorter Catechism, says that Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and and that in a low condition. His humiliation is that he was being born and in a low condition. And so the takeaway here is that this should encourage us about the mundane of our own life, Jesus, he steps down into this low condition, into an ordinary place, a lowly stable, and does it not sanctify even our ordinary callings and even our lowly lives? As one author says, Jesus' feeding trough suffuses all the glamorlessness of our callings with a touch of his humble glory. I hope that encourages you. Third thing. I want to point out about this significant announcement is that of salvation. And this is the one where our mind always goes to when we think about this passage. And so one of the things that I love it when I read Scripture is when Scripture tells me something and then tells me what it means. I don't have to guess. You know, I I, I hear this event and now we have this explanation. It's always great when Scripture does that for us. It makes my job so much easier. And so this happens in this passage. And so we get this announcement that Jesus has been born. This birth has happened. But then the angels, they appear to the shepherds and they explain the significance of this birth. Why is this birth of a child, which there are probably hundreds, maybe even thousands in that area, why is that significant? And here's what they say to the shepherds. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. So we get a Messiah, a Lord, a Savior. And so these are good things. They're good news. And as Rusty prayed during our prayer of confession earlier, that means that something precedes good news, and it's bad news. It's awful news, as Rusty said. The gift of the Savior implies that there's a need. Right? If there's a Savior, there must be a, something that they're being saved from. And if the gift is for all the people, like verse 10 says, then all people have a need. And so this extends from the worst criminals to church folks like you. All people. If you're living and you're breathing, then you need this Savior. Hear Ralph Davis again. God did not send an economist because our deepest need is not poverty. 
nor a philosopher because our trouble is not incoherence. He didn't send a psychologist for our problem is not maladjustment, not an entertainer for our problem is not boredom, nor an administrator for we are not disorganized, nor a religious leader because we are not, not many of us anyway, irreligious. Savior, Messiah, Lord, such is the proclamation of Christmas. So it was our sin, our rebellion that put us in this condition of need. And so we're given exactly what we need, the answer to all of our problems. And I don't say that tongue in cheek. It really is the answer to all of our problems, the Savior. And so praise the Lord that this event is accompanied with this significant announcement of salvation for people who are lost. So this leads us to our third and our final point this morning. A surprising audience. So we looked at the secret arrangement of God and His providence and see how He uses things that we might not even expect or not even know. But now I want to spend, or actually we also just looked at the significant announcement, but now I want to spend a little bit of time looking at who this announcement was given to. So did you notice that when God chose to announce the birth of a Savior to the world, the very first people that he tells are a group of shepherds. It wasn't the rich and powerful or the famous. It wasn't scribes. It wasn't religious leaders. It was shepherds. And so here's the thing about shepherds. They were the lowest class of people in this society. They weren't allowed to participate in religious ceremonies. They weren't allowed to testify in court because their word was no good. They couldn't even testify. Nobody believed anything that they said. They were rejected. They were despised by their society. They lived with animals. Probably smelled bad. They were insignificant. They were dirty. But this is the way that God often works, right? Moses, a shepherd. David, a shepherd. Amos, you guessed it, a shepherd. And so God, He has a knack for using nobodies to accomplish His purposes. And so whenever I read Scripture, I want to ask two questions. Two questions I always ask myself whenever I read Scripture. One is, what does this passage tell us about God? And the second question is this, what does this passage tell me about me? And so we've talked a lot this morning about what this passage tells us about God, but what does this passage teach us about ourselves? Who are we in this passage? when we try to identify with what characters we line up with. And so the answer to that question is who we are in the midst of this passage. We're to identify with the shepherds, the insignificant, the lowly. Unto us a child is born as well, and he's our Savior and our Lord too. And so here's the point of this. Salvation comes in the manger, and the good news of this salvation goes to the scoundrels first right? It goes to the scoundrels before anybody else. And so the message here is not that Jesus even saves scoundrels. The message is that He only saves scoundrels. Because that's the only kind of people that there are. So here's the beautiful thing about this, though, is that we don't remain scoundrels. It's not the end of the story. There's a transformation that takes place. Um, when we encounter Jesus, we are no longer a nobody. 
so this is the last thing I want to look at here, the response to this great news. Let's look at how these shepherds were changed. Well, what did they do? They immediately left and they go find Joseph and Mary and the baby in a manger. And so this news provoked them to action. Let's go see him. And so they became the first evangelist of the church. They went and they told everyone about this. And everyone was astonished when they heard this story from them. And so isn't it amazing that the word of shepherds, though worthless in a courtroom, was valued by God? Right? This word of a shepherd who couldn't even be trusted in court was valued by God. And so we have this another reversal again. So may we follow in their footsteps, proclaiming the good news of the gospel for all to hear. And so whereas the shepherd's response was action, was going, was doing, Mary had a different response. Mary's response was passive. It says in verse 19 that she treasured these things in her heart and pondered them. So have you ever had something so significant happen in your life that it's all you can think about? You replay the events in your head. You chew over it. You carefully think about it. You're kind of almost stunned asking yourself, did that just happen? That's what Mary is doing here. And so we also need to follow in Mary's footsteps. Don't be content with just a swift reading of this passage. Chew on it. Mull over it. Treasure it in your heart. Ask God for understanding and insight, and He will give it to you. So in conclusion, I want to take us all the way back to the beginning. We talked about what does Christmas mean to me? Have you thought about what you would write in your song if you were writing that song? I'm sure I'd have to work to make it rhyme, but this is what I would include in that song. The incredible story, the, the, the depths of my sin, the providence of God orchestrating seemingly insignificant events, the miracle of the virgin birth, the good news of great joy that He sent a Savior to save me, to meet my need. And that Savior, He was God Himself. That He entered into a time of humiliation and incarnation to bear my burdens. That this news was for scoundrels and shepherds. The culturally insignificant. And that we're to rejoice in this and proclaim to whoever will listen and then we're to treasure it in our hearts, to think on it, to ponder it. And so that's what Christmas means to me when I read this passage. So I'll close with this well-known line from Joy to the World. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. The curse is over everything. And so he comes to make his blessings known to even that extent. So may God bless you today. May his blessings become abundantly clear to you in this season. Glory to God in the highest. Let's pray.